What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Hubert. In this podcast, Ralph, my co-host, and I interview Eric Broda. Eric is currently co-authoring a book titled Implementing a Data Mesh, where he talks about how to implement a data mesh based on his experience. Eric has an interesting perspective on his data mesh vision. Having written a book myself titled Streaming Data Mesh, some of Eric's concepts conflict with what was written in my book, specifically on how to define a domain and data products, as well as ways to consume them. At the end, we're trying to solve problems rather than debating over pedantic implementations of a data mesh. We join this interview as Eric introduces himself and his experience with data mesh. Sure, perfect. Well, first off, uh, Hubert and Ralph, thank you very much for uh, for having me on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, thanks a lot. Let me make sure that I have the right set my settings really quickly. All right. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, number one. I so I guess I, like I said, I just finished reading your book, and I'd love to know if you're allowed to share any of the, the reviewers that are reviewing your book, or is that something kind of? Uh, we are just getting a few of those set up uh, at the moment, uh, and my co-author is actually taking care of most of that. So I don't think we have the names uh, names finalized yet. Okay, great. Um, and in general, uh, with your book. Does do you do you, would you consider it as a more technical implementation or more like policy implementations for a data mesh? I think we're looking more at the technical side, although you, you can't do the technical without having some semblance of architecture and policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're trying to make it very um, very hands on. That doesn't mean we're going to have a lot of code snippets. Uh, but if you look at Zamak's original book, um, there's a lot of focus on principles and attributes. And, and obviously, we're going to kind of start with that. Um, but the next question is, you know, how do I how do I turn those principles into practice? How do I actually find a good, first off, what is a good data product? And how do I actually find it? And specifically, how do I go um, implementing things like a, a slash discover endpoint? How do I integrate Gen AI into the picture? Where does it actually fit? So we're adding a bunch of things that um, I think, again, turn principles into practice, but also incorporate some of the obvious new things, Gen AI, for example, that have been taking place. And where do they fit into the puzzle also? Interesting. Yeah, I read that part of and the, I think it was in the first chapter. Um, but uh, let's say, let's say, let's get like your own definition of what a data mesh is, because I think... Um, I, but I have I have a basic understanding of what Jama thinks uh, what a data mesh is. Obviously, is her she she invented it. I'd love your interpretation of what a data mesh is, just in general. Sure. I mean, let, let's let's kind of summarize for for folks that are listening. What it you know, Zamax principles um, boils down to kind of four things. Um, every uh, you know, every data product has a clear boundary. Every uh, data product has an owner. Um, we strive towards a self serve. Uh, capability, and what we have is federated governance. So, so that's a lot of things to unpack. But I'll make a really simple definition that I use: is uh, a data mesh is just an ecosystem of data products. And the data product again has that boundary and has that owner, 
Uh, if you're if you can implement it well, you have that self-service capability. And if you implement it well, the data product is the source of governance capability also. So ultimately, you know, the first core concept is a data data product. The data mesh is really an ecosystem of interacting and sometimes even transacting uh, data products. Interesting. Um, hey, hey, Ralph, I think there might be some background noise. Um, oh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, that's excellent. Uh, excellent uh, summary there, um, Eric. Well, uh, uh, there are some uh, like paragraphs or sentences I read in your in your book so far that kind of hinted that um, a data mesh, the, the mesh part of data mesh, is uh, connections between data products, right? Is it also a connection between Domains. Well, it depends. Everybody has a slightly different definition of domain. So, so let me. Okay. The way, so, an enterprise would have multiple domains. There's customer, product, account, at least in financial services. Um, but I, I would characterize those is is macro level granularity. Uh, and when you have, uh, if you think about just the customer domain. Um, if I'm a large, let me take a good example. Some of my, most of my clients are global firms. They have, you know, geographic capability. Um, if I were to look at customer, the customer domain, which is almost always where a chief data officer, for example, would start. The practical implication, though, is customer is resident in every business unit and in every geography. And by virtue of being in every different geography, Rules and regulations are different for each of your, 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 your geographic domains. So where a data product comes in is I would have data products, for example, for customers in the UK. And it may even get more, more granular. I may have customers for wealth management in the UK. So domains, in my parlance, are macro-level groupings of um, data, whereas a data product because it's an implementation construct, is much more granular, okay? And it, it happens to actually um, wed very well to the fact that when you actually have to implement this, you have to be cognizant of the rules and regulations, the policies, privacy, and otherwise, um, where your data product actually runs. So, so really, it's a question of granularity, and the data product is, as my co-author calls it, the quantum, the lowest... Mm -hmm indivisible unit within actually a data mesh, which, which does suggest that it has a level of granularity. I don't think that comes necessarily clear in all of the material that's out there, but that's mm -hmm. the definition of the difference between domains and, and data products specifically. Right, right. So when I thought, when I read Jamak's um, content, uh, I assumed, although, I mean, there were just hints of it, but I assumed that the domains were coined domains because of domain-driven design. And the way you just describe what a domain is, is really gets an aggregation of similar ge geographical um, or, or govern governance, uh, um, you know, well, requirements. Right? Probably characterize it a little differently. So, so here, here's the fundamental thing. When you're picking the, the very ver first and most practical thing somebody that's moving into data mesh needs to think about is what is my very first data product? Hmm. Um, inevitably, inevitably, you the only way you're going to get a data product selected is if you have a sponsor. 
somebody who's who says, I have a business problem and I think this can actually solve it. And perhaps I'm going to invest in data mesh, which is relatively new perhaps to that business executive, but it, it allows for us to do better, faster, cheaper, get to an end goal uh, quicker. So, so if that in fact is the case, um, you, every data product that you have probably, at least for the very first, I'd say the first 10, first five to 10 has to have actually a sponsor. What that suggests is no matter which way you'd like slice and dice it in every large organization or even the small ones, uh, a sponsor is an executive who has funding, decision-making accountability and funding. What that really means is that almost all of your data products will, will initially follow Conway's law. Conway's law says ultimately your systems, in my parlance, data products will follow your organizational construct solely for one, one very simple reason. That's the decision maker who has the money who can actually affect a problem and invest in making a data product and, and consequently eventually a data mesh. So that that's that's almost always how these things start. And in fact, it started in every one of my implementations uh, and experience with data mesh. It starts with that sponsor who has the decision making authority to has a problem that needs to be solved and the decision making authority and wherewithal to actually solve that problem. Mm -hmm. um, so that that is the def that, that is where you typically start, and which is why you you have um, in many cases a geographical or more specifically, I would say, because business units align to geographies in many cases, you have a business unit, um, a business unit construct uh, where, where the data products fit into. So um in your mind, do you think it's a, a more natural or a faster path if you have that sponsor? So you're, you're you're thinking of like more data products first before you do before you assign a domain to a group of uh, of uh, technologists. Well, I, I would look at it differently. Um, if the if if you truly believe that data mesh and hence data products have value, your your goal should be hit to have as many as you possibly can. So the only question is, how do you actually go about doing that? And for me, uh, really, what it boils down to is being able to have somebody who has a problem that needs to be solved, okay, and has the wherewithal to and the money to actually get that problem solved. Um, now, here's why this is so crucial and important. If you, again, want to have at some point in time a many data products um, in, your, in your environment, um, the very first one you do has to work, okay? And it has to fulfill the promises and the expectations of the business sponsor. But here's the thing is that means you're going to focus all your efforts on doing that. But here's the beauty of that, and this is what's happened time and time again with me, is if you can get that very first one done, what you have is a sponsor, who will help you get the next one and the next one and the next one. So, so all of a sudden what you're not doing is you're selling technology for technology's sake. You're actually saying, I can, you turn it completely around. I can solve a business problem and I have this thing called data mesh and data products that let me do it much more effectively. So if you can get that message across and deliver on your very first promise, then what you have is an executive who, you know, one executive who's sponsoring you is worth, 10 technical folks that can, you know, can, can say it's a great thing to do. Mostly because, again, that business executive has a problem that needs to be solved. They have the decision-making authority and they have the funding to help you move forward. Oh, that's great, great definition. Oh, uh, so you brought up money, right? Do, do you think um, it's best practice to do chargeback? Let's say you have your, you have a data product, somebody's consuming it, another domain or some other type of consumer 
is it best practice to charge back those resources that you're providing to, to provide that data product to that to that domain? I think I think over time that's probably where things will go. But but let me kind of I'm gonna I'm gonna answer it a little differently. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so um, a lot of times the technical folks by their very nature will will take a look at the cost. But here here's the 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 thing that people don't realize. If you're a business executive, mm -hmm. okay. Any any cost in lieu of a benefit is a big number, okay. But here's the thing: is the business executive has a problem to solve. So they, so so I'll give you a simple example. Earlier, uh, one of my first opportunities to deliver uh, data mesh was uh, to help an executive uh, release a new product into a very big market. And what they told me is is something along the lines of: Look, even if you cost X, okay, the opportunity is a hundred to 200 to 500 X in terms of revenue. Okay. So, so really what they said is I'll figure out the cost side of the equation. If you can deliver me the revenue side of the, the if you can deliver the product and help me deliver the revenue side. Mm -hmm. So, so to answer your question very specifically, if, if you're thinking about chargeback with your very first, you know, first five data products, you're thinking about the wrong thing. You are, mm -hmm. you're absolutely going down the wrong path. If, however, you're saying that I'm going to solve some problems, recognizing that solving a business problem has a 10x, 100x multiplier on the costs that you may spend, mm. that's where you want to think about. Now, like cloud, okay, um, you know, the first series of cloud initiatives had um, some pretty significant opportunities and it was a focus on the revenue as opposed to the cost. But over time, cloud is now, it, it's a dollar and cents thing. It is a chargeback issue. It is how am mm. I actually monitor the expense? That's a good problem to have, but for data mesh, it's a problem that's down the road a bit. So let's say I'm I'm a data I'm a I'm a domain, uh, and I have data. Why would I care about other domains needing my data? Why, what would incentivize me to actually build a product to sell to other domains? I think we lost Eric there for a second. Oh, okay. <laughs> so currently, Chuck trying to 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 handle this problem is Migro as well. <laughs> oh yeah, That's basically the so cost. What would you What would you do, Rob? Do you, when you're in a domain, do you yeah. first search for a a buyer for your data product, or do you begin exposing your products for others to discover? Oh, but it looks like you really need a a target domain or a consuming dom domain before mm -hmm. you publish data. I mean, otherwise you don't have an incentive, right? So uh, I would say, um, what is your incentive? What, what we are planning is, oh, yeah. But what what we are, what we are plan planning to do is to basically, um, I mean, data um, of certain domains, for example, master data, which is what we're tackling now. Some of this this data has to be brought to some other recipients, mm -hmm. and 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 those people who produce that data they know that and they um so there's there's immediately a bunch of consumers standing in line waiting for the data and um now the idea is that we we intend to charge um the uh, producing domain basically so the producing domain has to um, pay for the search surf infrastructure, which is in our case Kafka, or the Kafka team. Um, 
and then um, the okay, I respect. Then the precision domains can actually actually get the money back from those consumers. Hey guys, it's uh, Eric. Hey. Oh yeah. So, I don't know if you guys. <laughs> the computer can went hear down. Me? Yeah. 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 So, anyway, we had a we had a power we had oh, a power wow. outage over here, so I'm in the dark. So I'm going to turn off my uh, oh, video. <laughs> I apologize yeah, for that. Wait, this is, yeah, this is a, this is an audio podcast, so maybe we should all kind of turn off our cameras so that we reduce the bandwidth there. Okay. For sure. Um, thanks for hopping back on, Eric. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Some philosophy about, about the charging or chargeback thing. So yeah, yeah. I was just mentioning. I mean, we're actually building. Um, Kind of a data mesh based on Kafka at my organization now, and oh, and now Eric's back again. Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. I need, I need to find a a better spot for reception. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So the the, the idea would be to basically ah yeah. So when I think about chargeback, Sorry, it's, Ralph, you get that. yeah. So you could just. Yeah, so um, not actually a question, maybe an observation which we, um, which I'm currently having at my organization. So we're, we're building this data mesh um, inspired um, organization um, in my company. It's a retailer from Switzerland, and what we're actually doing is we um, we charge the producers of the data essentially. So those domains will provide data, and they in turn um, they have to get the, the money back from the consumers, basically, which makes them produce better data products <laughs> in a way. But um, if they produce good data products, then the probability increases that there's more um, consumers wanting this data. Right. right. So that's, right. That's, that's a very simple solution we um, are currently aiming at. Yeah, I think I, I've that's always had this idea. kind of like chicken and egg problem with data products, right? Do I wait for somebody to ask for a data product or do I create them and sell them? Or like who who starts? And I've always thought like a, uh, like a data product mart or a market mm -hmm. would yep. be, you know, something where I would just create a data product or have one that could be made into a data product where others could, you know, shop around, just like a grocery store. Hey, this mm -hmm. is your Apple. That's a data product. It's wrapped. It's got stamps on it. it tells me that it's uh, organic and so on. Oh, I'm going to use that data product, right? Um, there's no selling. It, you know, it it, it it tells me that that I, you know, it, it, I know what I would, what it is. I know what I'm going to use it for. I know where it came from. I'm going to use it. So that's from a consumer. There's no like, there's no selling of it, right? That that implies that these data products are readily available to be made into data products, right? Even if, let's say, I have an operational uh, domain and I'm, I have an application, I have like a, a you know, a, a, a table like of, of uh, you know, produce that, that I'm constantly yep. updating, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, and I, and somebody at, goes into some like catalog and which is acts as like the, the data market, data product mm -hmm. market. And goes in. Oh, here's one that's available for for produce. I want to, you know, subscribe to it. it I see where what the lineage would be, what what it's going through, 
it's coming from the database I expect it to come from or the application that's come from, I select it. You know, I, 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 I request to be granted access to that data. Even if the data uh, pipeline doesn't exist yet, um, the data the data product owner mm -hmm. could say, oh, somebody wants this, I'm going to go ahead and build that that stream to that consumer or that you know, or that data product to that consumer he or she consumes it however that data product specifies it's going to be consumed. That's what I always look up, you know, look like I I, I tend it to a, a grocery store with products, which implies that those products need to exist beforehand. Yeah, so so the concept that you're highlighting is uh, fundamental to data mesh. It is, uh, some people call it a catalog. Um, I tend to call it a data product registry. And, and it does exactly what you mentioned. So, so if you think about back to my original definition of a data mesh, which is an ecosystem of data products that interact and transact, in order to interact, you actually, the very first thing you have to do is you have to be able to find each other which means that there's a catalog. Uh, again, we call it a registry just because there's there's a uh, catalog's an overloaded term and and things, you know, there, there's a lot of challenges with data migration mm -hmm. into the catalog metadata. And and we call it a registry because um, there's only a, an absolute basic amount of information that needs to be in this registry. It kind of acts like a DNS for the internet where it's it's more or less like a phone book. It doesn't tell you everything about it, but it tells you how to find everything about it. So, and this will all be in the book, by the way, but uh, this registry has you know, really, really simple stuff. Like it's this is the summary of the data product, and these are perhaps some tags associated with it. In, in the book, we'll, we'll demonstrate how you can populate that uh, relatively easily with generative AI, effectively creating the summaries and the tags. But once you have that, we use, again, Gen AI, more, more specifically the vector database to do similarity searches. And then you can actually, with simple natural language, you can actually find the data product you're looking for. So in order to do that, though, every data product has to have some basic, I call it a harness, or a basic scaffolding. <laughs> and it's absolutely minimal. And it requires one thing, and that is a slash discover endpoint. So every data product has, a, well, kind of two, two, two pieces of that. It has a slash discover endpoint so that if something is registered in the catalog, it can actually be found. And once, once you hit that discovery endpoint, you get all the metadata and everything else about the product, but it's all that information is resident and delegated back to the source, i.e. the data product. Now, the second piece of that puzzle to make the catalog or the registry work is, is we add uh, into this harness, if you will, or the scaffolding, we actually add the ability. It's, it's a super lightweight microservice, but effectively every data product has a microservice that, ha that hosts that slash discover endpoint. But also when it starts, it advertises itself to the catalog and it sends that simple summary or simple description or stuff like that. So what ends up happening now is every data product automatically registers itself in the in the registry and anybody can query the registry which has typically api but also a ux a user interface on top of it so they can actually find the information that they're looking for and that is kind of the that is a the secret sauce if you will uh, but it also is a very differentiated very different concept than what a lot of folks are using for your enterprise data catalog where what ends up happening is the enterprise data catalog becomes a central source for all metadata and all information about 
you know, individual data sources and even in some cases data products. But we find that, you know, inevitably it's, it's out of sync. Um, and once it's out of sync, uh, its efficacy really drops uh, rather dramatically. So, so, so you're, you're on to exactly the right concept, uh, Hubert. Uh, and it is something that will be absolutely positively in our book in a lot more detail. Right, right. So, um, so going through the consumer experience, if I go into the data catalog or registry, there's going to be some data products. The assumption is, is that if nobody's consuming those data products yet, that those pipelines that cleanse and transform and make them available to be data products don't exist unless they already do. If they already do, then somebody's paying for those resources to be ran for, for nobody to be, for, for no consumers, does that, that make sense? So uh, my, my point is really that you'll, you'll have a bunch of data products in your data, data product registry that don't have the back end to them until somebody clicks the button that says, I wanted to su subscribe to this, run that pipeline, charge me the resources for those for, for running that pipeline to get that data to me. Would that be, would that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you kind of faded in and out there for a moment, but I think the question is along the lines of, um, you know, if, if somebody says if, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's listening, did the tree really fall and does anybody care? Um, mm -hmm. Ultimately, the, the question you're asking is, is um, if somebody's building a data product and nobody cares about the consumption, then, you know, then why would you go do that? Um, I do think that it does happen quite frequently. A lot of times when you haven't started with the business problem that you're trying to solve and you start with a technical problem, you end up building data products that some folks may not need. And, and ultimately you're gonna have pipelines that are used and, and cloud uh, capability that is consumed that uh, is ultimately wasted. Uh, like I said, I think the approach that we recommend strongly is it's all about starting with the business problem and then molding the data products to address that business problem. And once that's done, you avoid the problem of having, you know, you're spending a lot of stuff doing a lot of work um, when nobody actually cares and nobody's consuming it. So, so really, if you start with a business problem uh, and mold the data product to that, that kind of addresses a lot of the, the concerns around charging and cost uh, recovery and such. Okay. Um, I, I think some of my points in that question was might have been cut out. Um, uh, let's let's move on to uh, a different different question. So, uh, in, in data products. Um, what what qualifies a good data or what qualifies a trustable data product in your in your mind? Trustable data product is one that a delivers value. For that quite a bit already. I think the other part of a, a, a good data product is one that delivers on the expectations of the consumers. Um, so uh, you highlighted that I think the word you used is is trust. Um, that that is a fundamental concept in in you know, when I when I look at data mesh and data products, uh, you have to find a way to engender trust in your data products. And there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. So you can have like GitHub stars. Um, you know, people can like your data product. Uh, you can uh, have lots of people um, you know consuming it. And that's one proxy for trust. But I think the other one that we we tend to to do is we actually have. And there's so I've talked about the the minimum mandatory endpoints, that uh, being slash discover and a published capability or advertised capability. The other one that is crucial, in 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 our mind, um, 
when you think of federated uh, governance, it's really about the data product saying and confirming that it's actually adhering to the policies that are actually required. So how do we do that? Every data product has, whether it's security, privacy, or otherwise, it has a set of policies, sometimes dictated, dictated by the data governance group, sometimes by the regulatory constraints in a particular environment, but it's the responsibility of the data product to address those policies and confirm and state, making itself available, in other words, that it actually is adhering to those policies. So the, the best an analog I can give you is if you think, <clears throat> if you're in the States or in Canada, that we have something called the American Standards Association in Canada, it's the Canadian Standards Organization where I live. Um, but ultimately it's something that's on, for example, uh, on a wall outlet. Uh, when you plug your power in there, uh, your power um, cord into a wall outlet, it has a little thing that says CSA or ASA, American Standards Association. In other words, what it says is that somebody has said that that plug has met all the standards required by law. Okay, So we use that exact same concept. We call it certification and not governance. And that's where I think the federated governance approach comes in. We look at, again, if the data product and the owner of the data product is responsible for anything related to that, they are also responsible for governance. What that means is whatever policies are dictated from wherever, it is the responsibility of the data product owner to confirm or deny or report, you know, in any mix of those, report on its adherence to the actual policies. In other words, it self-certifies. Okay, and there's a degree of honesty, obviously, with that. But ultimately, it should, if it's missing some things, expectations are not being met, policies not being met, then it needs to be able to say that. And we implement that typically through a slash trust or a slash governance uh, endpoint in our data product, uh, data product scaffolding. That then lets anybody, including the governance organizations, but any consumer and even any uh, data producer to actually look at that data product and say, it is meeting the expectations and the regulatory requirements and the security and the privacy requirements dictated by the organization. Yeah, so, so it's akin to like the, the labels on the produce is what, uh, what I understand that to that um, in your definition. What um, does yeah. uh, SLAs, um, make a trustable data product? And do you include that into your certification? Absolutely. So, so I would even generalize any expectation that a consumer, a provider, or a governance group has um, is, is formulated in some semblance of a policy. Any policy that is required of that data product, uh, the data product owner has to find a way to report on that, hopefully in, in as automated a fashion as possible. So, so for example, we see a lot of um, companies in that certification step that we have use products like Great Expectations, for example, where you can actually do in-depth analysis of the data, its characteristics, its profile, and be able to report on anomalies. Um, or, or, you know, anything that happens to be deviation from the policies required. So there, there's a lot of ways that you can actually automate that uh, and make it simple. What we, what we say to our, what we typically say, what we say to our clients is we turn governance, governance is a, typically a four-letter word, and we try and turn it around into something that's very practical, is not centralized, but rather the put the accountability to where the accountability needs to be, which is in the data product owner's um, care. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, you mentioned Open API in your um, 
preview. Um, and that's a, a, a rest request response, you know, endpoint or API, right? Um, which is REST yep. based. Uh, what happens to data products if they are like petabytes or, you know, terabytes, petabytes large? So, so all the APIs I mentioned are not related to consumption or ingestion, like the slash discover, the, the advertise capability, the slash govern, to use that example. None of those have heavy data volumes. <laughs> the things you're talking about are, and I'll trivialize and I'll just call it the, the slash discover endpoint and the slash ingest endpoint, knowing that they're not endpoints. But let me, so, so typically um, what we see are things like pipelines being used for ingestion and uh we see we see you know federated query um trino type capabilities um starburst type capabilities where folks actually query the data um but here's here's the fundamental challenge with that and by the way there's nothing wrong with that it's a very viable uh approach um because it addresses that need that you have specifically said if i got petabytes petabytes and i want to go and do some analysis on it uh, a request response restful endpoint just doesn't cut it. GraphQL endpoint doesn't cut it. You need to have a different approach. <laughs> um, but here's here's the 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 fundamental thing that we def we we um, we advocate is th the reason the APIs are, are actually so common, not for this type of thing, but the reason they're they're so prevalent is because you have things like an open API specification that gives you some semblance of a contract, okay? And if you use event streaming, you can use things like JSON schema and Avro and other things. But what ends up happening is you have a data contract. So here's, here's the, the big epiphany, is if you're gonna provide access to your data, okay, you have to do it through a prescribed contract. And that prescribed contract dictates, you know, the, the, the method of the request, the data, the parameters of the request, and it talks about the format structure and expectations around the actual output. Now, here's the other thing that APIs do so well that is still a challenge um, on the data side is open API specifications, for example, allow you to do versioning. And versioning in APIs is very, very common. And the reason you can do it is because those APIs shield the internals of whatever's behind that API. Here's the problem that you run into if you don't have the contracts. One is you're, and if you don't have that in one level of abstraction is what you're doing is you're exposing the internals of your data product, okay, to the consumers. Now, if you have one consumer, that's okay, but then you probably don't need a data product. Typically you have multiple consumers and what happens when, you know, those consumers are consuming multiple data products and the internals of every data product by virtue of having SQL or otherwise, no contract, but people can do what they want. Um, what ends up happening is you're exposing the internals when something breaks or some one data product changes its structure, okay, everything starts to fall apart. What, what you're doing by sharing the internals of the data product is you are effectively um, creating that big ball of wool architecture that nobody actually wants. You're binding unnecessarily different data products. So here's the way you address that. Like I said, in APIs, you have you know uh, an open API specification. In um, when you're when you're talking about bigger movements of data, what you were talking about is data contracts. And I, you know I'm the first to admit that this is an early stage um, capability, um, but it is starting to move very quick. There's some stuff, um, the uh, the data contract specification from PayPal, 
uh, is a great example. There's some work being done by other organizations. Um, but the fundamental capability here is, is when you're moving the data in and out, um, you want to have a contract that governs that. And if you have that contract and the, the an owner that data product owner that has the wherewithal to understand the implication of the contract, you can actually start to think about versioning and do things in a much more safer and reliable fashion. Yeah, no, I, I, I like the idea of using a open API as a way to define a data product, right? Um, it, it has the security definition in it, the schemas that you need to know. Um, and likewise, likewise, async API, right? Which extends open API for asynchronous APIs where data lives in something like a Kafka. Um, so you could, when you deploy an open API into a, uh, a API gateway, uh, you could also deploy async API because it extends open API and you have that same interface working uh, as well. Um, but absolutely. for, absolutely. but for, um, would you consider, let's say, you know, I have an open API endpoint. What is the, what, which would you consider the data product, the backend data? Let's say I have, you know, let's say I have a million users uh, table, a mil million row user table. Um, is that table the data product or is the API that does aggregations and SQLs uh, statements, is that the data product? The, the Again, the, the, the data product is, uh, ultimately it's, it's defined by its boundary. Um, and the, the principle behind the, 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 the data product is you don't want to expose the internals so that you can at least have some semblance of managing the change. So, so ultimately, the data product is the capability that it exposes, whether it exposes it through async, uh, the method you mentioned earlier, whether it's uh, event streaming, whether it's change data capture, whether it's APIs, or whether it's pipelines and other bulk data movements. The data product is defined by uh, the actual mechanism of exposing and sharing its data. Now, that concept applies uh, across the board. So, so here, here's how we do it in the old world in database. Uh, when I, you know, when I was uh, more active in the database world, is we would have table structures, but nobody would actually query against the table structure. They would use a view or something similar to that. In other words, the the view was constant, but the underlying structure uh, could could actually change. Um, so, so even in the older world, it was the view that actually defined the data because that's what people consumed, even though the underlying structure um, was there. So the same thing for data products. The data product is defined by the data that it chooses, that the owner chooses to expose and the methods that they choose to expose. It. Interesting. No, I, 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 uh, I like that idea. Um, have you ever considered or thought about, let's say you, you mentioned like a global in your uh, in your in your in your book, you you have a, a a use case called climate data mesh, right? Where we will also bring up the idea of a global climate data mesh. Uh, so data, you know, you you have your 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 checking temperatures and climate in every region of the globe, right? Um, mm -hmm. So so let's say I'm you know I'm in the U.S. and you're in you know uh, EMEA. Oh, um, and then I, or, well, the data that I'd like to access is in the MIA. Do I access it remotely from the U.S. and 
hit a server that is a data product in EMEA? Or what is the alternative there? Yeah, so this is actually a, a real world case. We just changed the names a little bit um, for, for probably obvious reasons. But uh, I am implementing um, a data catalog. That's uh, what we call it a data exchange um or uh, a nonprofit a global nonprofit um in the climate space and and their goal is to make climate data which is notoriously hard to find hard to consume hard to share hard to trust we want to make climate data easy to find easy to consume easy to share so so there's there's a, a broader data mesh capability and infrastructure underneath the cover so a fabric to use that term um, and there's a bunch of different data products, and those data products would be from, for example, NASA, which has a lot of um, geospatial temperature data, NOAA, or a variety of different organizations in, in Europe uh, and other uh, jurisdictions. Here's how the thing works, though, is we're never going to be able, in, in our design, our data mesh design has no, no pretense of being able to copy that data and put it into a central source. So, so ultimately... All the data is distributed all over the world, no matter which way you slice and dice it. And I would argue you have the same constraint in an, in an enterprise organization. Um, it's just you don't know that yet. Um, but but this is actually the probably the single best example of why the whole federated federated approach is the best and probably the most manageable approach on how you actually do this. Is because the data products are owned by discrete organizations none of which are related to each other, each have different uh, agendas, different budgets, different purposes. And, you know, far be it for NASA to actually uh, adhere to anything that a small group would actually say. So we have to live with what we have. So here's how the thing actually works, is we have um, Gen AI capability um, scraping tools that will ingest the information about a data product. I'll just say NASA in general, but NASA has thousands of different data sources. We ingest some capability from, um, from NASA websites that describe the data. Again, we summarize it using Gen AI tools, we create some tags, that goes into our climate data catalog. Now, when somebody actually chooses to search for it, they find that they say, hey, I want to get precipitation information for North America, Texas, or whatever, or Ontario, Canada. NASA has that data, so they would naturally find that through the simple natural language search. Now they're presented with information from NASA. Well, it's, a, it's really a tile that says there is information from NASA that meets your queries um, expectations. What we do is we provide a link, a URL, nothing more, nothing less, a URL to the actual data source. In other words, again, just like when I mentioned earlier, the whole notion of a data registry is we're like like the DNS. DNS just has, you know, IP address mapping um, so that you can actually find the ultimate uh, source of, you know, whatever's behind that IP address. We do exactly the same. We allow you to find stuff, but we don't actually have the data. We point you to the actual data and we make it really easy to get to the data that you're actually looking for. So, so to answer your question, yeah, um, the catalog will help you find it. And you will go to the actual data product source, the book of record, i.e. the data product that's owned by the data product owner to go get your data, the actual data. And that's the way that we're, we're designing this, this, um, climate, uh, uh, this climate example. But I would argue the analogs are exactly the same in your enterprise, okay? And I would argue the folks that choose not to recognize that 
are the folks that are going to have data products that are not necessarily consumed or there's going to be some overlap um, and there's going to be some a catalog that ultimately is out of date because there's a lack of incentives to actually uh, to, to keep it uh, updated and proper. Um, so, so that's that's how we're designing it. And it's a radically different approach than some of the other ones that we've seen out there. Right. In, in the book, you state that the climate data mesh is a temporal use case, which I'm translating as like a real-time use case because no, you, I, it's not. Yeah, what do you mean by no, temporal no. use case? So, so, so here's the, here's the big deal with, with climate data. Well, I think we kind of all know it changes literally by the second, <laughs> by the day, <laughs> by the month, by the, uh, you know, by the, the quarter. Um, everything in climate data is temporal. In other words, there's, you know, there's, there's data that's relevant today um mm -hmm. which will be historical tomorrow uh and there's new data that replaces it everything about climate data is temporal so so really everything has a timestamp on it is what i'm trying to say okay. um and there's a lot of examples of that that's why we have time series databases in FluxDB and stuff like that the enterprise world because a lot of data actually is temporal i.e it has a time based um dimension to it so that, that's what i meant by temporal okay okay so if i were running like a spark job I probably wouldn't be pointing to a data set that lives in a distant region because that would really slow down my my pipeline. Um, what I have to do is replicate that data locally and then consume or or run my run my pipeline. Yeah, I mean that, that's uh, the one thing I, I think it's which is important. I mean, to, especially if you have really large companies operating on a global scale. I mean you. I guess that this uh, the self-serve infrastructure bit of data mesh, and especially in that case, should have some kind of a, I don't know, caching or global replication mechanism in place, which well, um, should be, I mean, shouldn't be um, offloaded to the consumers. Um, I mean, well, in, a, you know in actual I mean? fact, so here's yeah, so so kind of yes and no, but here's how typically things work. So if I am, uh, if I'm looking for precipitation data um, and I'm looking for a year's worth of precipitation for a hundred or a thousand locations in, you know, Southern United States, um, you're going to have immense volumes of data. What we're going to do with the, the, the catalog or the registry or the exchange is we're going to actually point you to that data. But here's typically what happens is to your point, you can't do analytics on stuff that has super duper low latency across the network or across the globe. Almost everybody, once they have that URL, now they found the data. Mm -hmm. The way they consume it is they actually download it. That's typically what happens. And, and for the exact reasons you mentioned, which is, you know, you can't do low latency processing when, you know, um, you have a, a gigabyte or 100 gigabytes or a petabyte located across the globe. So almost always what we find, the usage pattern is they find the data, okay, and then they actually go, when they get the URL, and then they download it and do whatever it is they need. We, we find that the use cases are you know, all over the place. Right. Everybody does kind right. of uniquely with that data, the, but that's the pattern that we see. Yeah, the... My, my problem with that as a data consumer is that once I replicate that data to locally, I lose all the contracts that I that was given to me by the data product, right? If I make a copy of it, I take a snapshot of it, I no longer have those contracts. I don't have yeah. a data product so, anymore. I, I have a copy I of what product. Yeah, I think what would be interesting would be to have some kind of a um, transitive way of distributing data products so that you make you can pick up a data product from 
some place in the, in the US, um, replicated to Asia Pacific region, and then you publish it again as the same data product, <laughs> basically. Um, yeah. So, so the guarantees, yeah, the guarantees include replication across the regions, right? And your data, data product is provided locally to those consumers. Yeah. So, you could so we, we do a, the consumers. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. We no, no problem. We we do a little bit of that, but here here's the challenge you run into, <laughs> um, as the, cli the the climate data registry or the exchange, we actually don't know what our consumers are going to do with that data, and sometimes we actually you know don't even know who the consumers are. We just know that they have you know some account that is downloading the data. Um, I think in the ideal world, it'd be it'd be wonderful if we had one data product sending data to another data product. Um, that that's probably not like if I have a bank um, in North America that has is trying to consume something from NASA, um, and NASA structured mm -hmm. their data product in a particular way. Um, that bank probably has a different opinion around how they do it, minimally around security. So so the the the, the ideal of having you know collaborating data products maybe you know i'm not saying it won't happen uh, but mm. it's probably not the first um problem that's going to be solved it's probably down the road i mean it's a good problem to have if i have data products interacting i mean data mesh and mm. the whole concept of data products is everywhere the next stage of the evolution will be let's let them interact in a much more uh, amenable what fashion is, across boundaries um, what, does mean, yeah, what does it mean what does it mean for products i mean that would be great sorry yeah, yeah. Well, what does it mean for data products to interact are, are you are you saying like uh, enriching or joining data? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, so imagine I have, uh, I'll use a very simple uh, example from banking. Um, if I have a, uh, an account is, is an aggregate between a customer and a product. And the account is a representation that they did something with that product. Okay. So if I had three data products, I have a customer data product and I have a product data, a, da a product data product then my account data product interacts with the, you know, does a, a select, a query, an API call, whatever the case may be, the account data product interacts with the customer data product to figure out what that customer has and, you know, and, and representing. And then it interacts with the, the product data product um, to do its work. So, so in that case where we have three data products, the account one being an aggregate of, of the two others, that's the interaction you're looking at. You have one data product communicating with another to get data, publish data, consume data, share data, whatever the case may be. I see. So so um, based on that definition, it sounds like th this is one, one of my other questions I was going to ask you. If, if a data product can be compo uh, composable, who's whose job is it to join them together the consumer or the producer of the data product in my mind it is the uh in, in there, it, you can go either way um but ultimately if i had the using my previous example um let's just say a customer and the pro the product data product are kind of root um they don't use anything else let's just say that as an example and i have the account data product that ingests the two it's ingesting the two um, to to create that fulsome account data product, but it's doing it for a particular set of consumers, and how it how it ingests the customer and the the product data products is really a, a detail that's inside the black box and does not need to be exposed. So ultimately, in my mind, the account data product is 
the 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 owner of the two it happens to consume the other two and it is the owner of the representation of the account however it amalgamates the customer and the, the product information uh, but the account data product is actually the one that owns the representation of both of those and in effect it is the owner of the the amalgamated data yeah so the the resources there and assigning you know ownership of those of that payment of you know resources is going to get really complicated in the in the mesh. So there, there's hopefully some parts in the mesh that tells you now who it actually is consuming while you're you know joining these two data sets together that live in two different domains, right? That's, that's yeah. that'll be pretty complicated. Well, well, here's the thing: if there's a business need, it's complicated. Mm. <laughs> so, so yeah. here's, here's my problem. It's actually the, the right way to do it. I mean, actually the um, as soon as um, a derived or composed data product is actually being consumed by someone else, then the ownership should be at the producing end or the, at the composing end, <laughs> so to say. Well, and I think it's that the data product, the data product owner, who is yeah. like, like again, the, the for for all intents, the the person or the group that that consumes the account data product does not have to have any understanding. Other than there has to be a level of trust, they have no understanding as to how the black box was engineered and turned, the data was transformed to create the the account view. Mm -hmm. So in my terminology, again, the the owner of the data product is the one responsible for every aspect of it, how it ingests the data and how it represents the data. So the account data product is the owner. <laughs> it mm -hmm. owns every aspect of it, bar none. Now, like I said, it may communicate with, and, and I'm giving a trivial example, an account data product probably, you know, interacts with many other data sources. But here's here's the thing, is if, if, if the business domain is complex, and I'm giving you a trivial version <laughs> with the, with, within banking, add payments to that, and you have an inherently complex environment. But here's the difference, okay? If you have an inherently complex business domain, data products and data mesh will make it simpler, primarily because now I have an owner. Okay, and that owner has some level of accountability for whether it's contracts or sharing that data and ensuring that it meets the certification expectations of the actual consumers. That's the difference. Business is complex, period, mm -hmm. full stop. It's simple, anybody can do it. Okay, big banks like JP Morgan, TD Bank here in Canada um, make a lot of money because they do something that is inherently difficult, complex, and highly regulated. Okay. But the bottom line is, is um, they have that uh, ownership and accountability. Um, and, and, and like I said, from a data product perspective, that's where the ownership and accountability should reside. What, what other data products um, do you think that could be supported, right? Like you have the, the, the asynchronous way of uh, consuming data, like through, say, Kafka. You have your synchronous way of doing it, like uh, your open API. Um, I, I believe there are other synchronous ways of 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 consuming data, like your like GitHub or Git based data. Uh, if you're familiar with like LakeFS or Dot Dolt Hub, um, you can get data just by cloning it. And uh, or you could, you know, if I were in a Spark job, I can just provide an S three, you know, an S three link, which is just a file link, um, you know, that that will point my job to read that data on uh, on an object store right um 
so those like the latter two things, the GitHub or the Git way or the UR or the URL way or the um, uh, I don't know file way uh, protocol or scheme um, aren't supported in OpenAPI, which is right now the only specification that I know of that uh, can support synchronous um, uh, uh, definition of an endpoint uh, of data. Um, if you look back at the, the SOAP days in WSDL, you could actually define different endpoints. Um, but OpenAPI, that I, mean, I don't know as well. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't think there's a way to actually specify other types of endpoints for data. Um, love your thoughts on that, Eric. Yeah, so, so I've seen uh, consumption, ingestion and consumption uh, work in all the different ways that you mentioned. Um, you know, you, you, when you think about how consumption occurs, there's the, the, the technology layer and then there's the, the format structure layer. So, so for example, um, I could use open API specifications, which happen to have, you know, some element of structure into it. Um, I could have parquet files, okay? And there isn't necessarily a transportation definition for that, um, but it offers structure, okay, uh, and format. So I've actually seen uh, examples where, uh, in the old world, I have mainframes that are actually the the they're they're the 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 sources the the production um, system sources that actually um, move data into the analytics world into data products, um, and that's that's batch old style JCL, um, you know. So so really boils down to um, any approach can be taken. It's the data product owner to simplify that complexity. Okay, uh, and, and limit the near infinite choices into something that's manageable. Interesting, uh, Ralph. Have any like uh, you only have two minutes here? Do you have any uh, final questions? No, I'm happy. Great, great. Uh, Eric Broad, uh, I really, really appreciate you joining us. This was a this was a really uh, interesting uh, conversation. Really liked your uh, book, and I'm looking forward to more chapters in your next uh, early release. Um, where can we find you, Eric? Oh, he's gone. <laughs> All right. We lost him again. We lost him. All right. Um, any final thoughts, Ralph? Oh, there Take, he is. Oh. Eric. Yeah. <laughs> this power outage thing. <laughs> anyway, first off, uh, thanks very much for um, for having me on board here. Uh, excellent questions, by the way. A lot of which will be addressed in the book. Um, so uh, uh, stay tuned. It's coming out. Uh, there's a variety of different chapters. Our Gen AI chapter should be coming out in about uh, four weeks. Uh, and the book should be ready sometime in early 2024. Um, so I value the opportunity to talk about it here. And thanks for the fantastic questions. Great. Um, so it'll take me about a week or so to clean it up because I talk a lot in between and trying to fix things. So. Um, just stay tuned. I'll, I'll let you know when it comes out, Eric. Awesome. Thank you very much, sir, Ralph and uh, Hubert. Thank you very much yeah. for uh, taking the time to talk with me. Absolutely. See you guys. Thanks a lot for your time. Bye. Bye. Bye.